These days, we can so easily tune out the realness, the piercing tenderness of what it's like to be another person. And so much of what we're advocating for is just start with one human heart at a time. If compassion is a kind of superpower, it enabled our species to survive. Let's tap into that superpower and be willing to be brave enough to make room enough for other people to land in your heart. So what if there was a game-changing relationship practice or tool or set of strategies that was capable of not only transforming your personal relationships, even the really tense ones, by the way, but also your relationship with yourself and even the way you respond to others, even complete strangers, and embrace shaping the world around you to be a better place? Well, it turns out there just might be. And this is where we're headed today with my guest, Rick Hansen. So Rick is a psychologist, senior fellow at UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center, and New York Times bestselling author of seven books published in 31 languages, including his latest, Making Great Relationships. He's the founder of the Global Compassion Coalition and the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, as well as a co-host of the Being Well podcast. And Rick has lectured everywhere from NASA and Google to Oxford and Harvard. He's an expert on positive neuroplasticity, and his work has been featured everywhere from CBS to NPR, BBC, and so many other outlets. He actually began meditating in 1974 and has taught in meditation centers worldwide for nearly five decades. And today, we're diving into the world of relationships, starting with how we relate to ourselves and to those around us, with a focus on the role of compassion and self-compassion. We explore how difficult it is for many people to have self-compassion and really loyalty towards themselves, which can prevent us from being able to offer compassion to others, or how self-compassion makes people stronger and more resilient and is actually a way to stand up against our inner critics. We also touch on the importance of recognizing suffering in others and not tuning it out and how empathy alone can lead to burnout and depletion while compassion activates reward centers in the brain that help really replenish the energy needed to be present and helpful to others in need. And we explore the importance of cultivating deep and meaningful relationships with others and something he calls warming the heart, which is the practice of connecting with oneself and others on really a deeper level, which leads to more compassion and empathy. And we talk about the importance of seeing the person behind the eyes and putting no one out of your heart, even if you need to change the form or nature of your relationship with them, and how anger can actually be useful if we observe a two-stage process of getting angry and then learn to use anger without letting it use us. And finally, we discuss the importance of setting boundaries, standing up for yourself, and taking care of yourself while still really retaining an open-heartedness and benevolence towards others. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
Nerd Life Project is sponsored by Cozy Earth. So you know those moments where you slip into something ridiculously soft and comfortable and it kind of feels like a warm hug? That's the Cozy Earth experience. I can still remember the first time I tried their bamboo sheets. It was like wrapping myself in a cozy cloud. But Cozy Earth is not just about bedding. They've got an entire line of loungewear that'll make you never want to change out of your pajamas. My personal favorite is their bamboo joggers. Like everything else they make, they're just incredibly soft and breathable and temperature regulating so you never get too hot or too cold. Perfect for those lazy Sunday mornings or bopping around the house. And the best part, Cozy Earth's commitment to quality means all their products come with a 100-night sleep trial and a 10-year warranty. So if you're looking to transform your home into a sanctuary of comfort and luxury, I highly recommend giving Cozy Earth a try. Save up to 35% on Cozy Earth loungewear, pajamas, bedding, bath towels, and more. Go to Cozy Earth earth.com and enter the promo code goodlife at checkout for up to 35% off. That's cozyearth.com promo code goodlife or just click on the link in the show notes and enter the code goodlife. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Which is really excited to dive in to explore some of the many, many ideas from the book. But also even before we, we jump into that, curious around some of the work that you've been doing with the Global Compassion Coalition. Because it seems like this is bigger than a project. This is a devotion that brings people together around compassion, but it's built into the idea of what you have built here along with others is the notion of compassionate scale. So for those who've never have no exposure to this concept, take me into it a bit. Oh, sure. Thanks for asking, actually. So here we are, 8 billion of us living on planet Earth, and we take for granted ways of living that are completely unnatural, abnormal to our biological template, in which, for example, 97% of the 300,000 years our species has walked the Earth, everyone who lived did so in the context of a small hunter-gatherer band, typically spending most of your days with the same 40 or 50 people, with a little flow out and a little flow into your band. And we evolved a unique strategy for living together that was extremely effective, unlike any other of the hundreds, several hundred primate species. We're unique because of our big social brains in establishing a social life on a foundation of what's called caring and sharing, or in other words, compassion and justice. 
A more primitive strategy called holding and controlling, these are anthropological terms, involves alpha dominance, in which alphas hold on to food and control reproductive access. Humans unleashed, our ancestors unleashed that primitive strategy on other bands, sometimes, often, but inside the band, they cooperated. It's remarkable to appreciate that that fundamental way of life is basic to us. But when agriculture came in with large surpluses, enabling large populations and concentrations of wealth and power, that unique human evolved strategy for politics, for regulating power, for sharing resources, for protecting those who are vulnerable was disrupted. And it's been more or less Game of Thrones for the last 10,000 years. Those are the facts. And what the Global Compassion Coalition is about is scaling what worked in our ancestors' lives for 97% of the time we've been on this planet. We're not going to go back to the Stone Age. This is not all about that. I like ESPN. I like ibuprofen. You know, I like access to fresh food, you know, et cetera. But how do you actually restore compassion and justice at the foundation? of societies, especially for the 80 to 90% of the population in the world who live under the boot of a tyrant in daily life, right? How do you actually do that? And it's clear that the only way to do that is to take a page out of our ancestors' book and the many must join together to regulate the powerful few. It's not about making enemies out of the powerful few, but it's actually understanding that so much of the suffering that people experience day to day, like the fact that 10,000 children a day die of hunger worldwide, the fact that eight men possess as much wealth as 4 billion people. These are facts. And those facts drive vast systems of injustice that create so much preventable human suffering. So the vision of this coalition is to be big enough, to be strong enough, to actually make a dent in things like child poverty, child hunger, climate change, wealth inequality, discrimination at a global scale. Mm. I don't think we'll see the results in my lifetime, but we have to start at some point, right? And that's the vision here, to yeah. create a new kind of global commons that um, is focused on four things, the study, education, application, and advocacy of compassion in a way that enables people at scale to pool their money, to pool their effort, to pool their time in a way that's big enough to actually make the kind of difference that we long for. Yeah. I mean, it's such a powerful vision, the way that you lay it out. And certainly we all live in a world where we feel the need for something that will allow us to see the humanity in others and, and hope that they see the same in ourselves so that we yeah. can feel more connected, more dignity-centered, more empathetic, more altruistic. What jumped out at me as you're sharing this is the size of the vision is so big. What you're talking about is so big. I'm curious whether, you know, as you build this out, this engine for, for global compassion, how do you actually get people to raise their hand? When you look at the scale of this, so many people don't actually even lift a finger to do anything that is in line with their values because yeah. they just, they look at the size of the problem and they say, but who am I? Like, there's nothing that I can do to make a difference. And when you present something like this, on the one hand, the vision is so astonishing. 
and you look at it and you say, yes, 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 yes. And then you look at the state of the world and you say, how on earth could this actually even succeed? I'm curious because you've been in it. Yeah. How has it been rallying people and inviting them to really buy into the possibility of this being real? Yeah. Well, I appreciate you letting me, you know, rant here a bit. And, you know, <laughs> and I'll try to be more succinct. Yeah, I'm really fascinated by it. <laughs> from now on. It's a great question. First, I think a lot of people feel deep down that something has just gone wrong. The game is rigged. Even for people who are quite privileged like I am, I'm appalled at the unfairness of the political system, whether it's here in America or around the world. Many, many people, I think, have a growing feeling of there's something crazy. And it's often the younger people who feel it. But with that is despair. Just like you said, you feel hopeless. You can't do anything about it. I think there's a feeling among people that the only way out is to come together at scale that can stand up to corporate power, that can stand up in the countries around the world that are you know, just beginning to develop civil society and have a long way to go. Now, if people don't want to participate, okay, fine. We're going to keep going. And our main focus is not replacing any organization, but celebrating the literally tens of thousands of people and organizations worldwide that are trying to make the world better. Yeah, with the compassion at the center of that. Yeah, response to suffering, preventable suffering especially. Right, and at the heart of that is you know being able to actually not just move through life with an us and them mentality, yeah, which has been so ingrained in us. Yeah, <laughs> from the earliest days in our lives, it's sort of like you have limited you know there's scarcity of resources, and the only reason that you come together like is because the, the us is protected, and then we get better access to the resources rather than we're at a moment where we all need to be the us. And yeah, to, that's right. to mobilize on the scale you're talking about, you know, in the name of compassion and decreasing global suffering, yeah. regardless of if we know the person, if they look like us, if they believe like yeah. us, is a radical yet profoundly powerful idea. I know. Thank you for saying that. And part of what's very hopeful is to realize that numerous coalitions have formed at scale to drive systemic change. Like I grew up in America and in the 60s and 70s, and I kind of came of age politically in the late 60s, and I was still pretty young. I was a teenager. And I saw the civil rights movement, environmentalism, gay rights, women's rights, four major movements, transformational in America. How did they get successful? A small group of people initially formed. It took generations. We still have a long way to go, but they came together at scale. And they were willing to be diverse and heterogeneous in their scale. They didn't have purity tests. Basically, if you were for the central issue, that was good enough. If you were for it because you were a born-again Christian, that was great enough. If you were for it because you were a secular atheist philosopher, that was good enough. If you were just for it because you just were pissed off, at injustice, that was good enough. You know, if you were for it because you had taken LSD and you had this vision of a hippie world for everybody, that was good enough, right? You know, there are many examples of that. Also, I just thinking recently about remember how there used to be a hole in the ozone layer mm-hmm. vaguely in the past. I, I remember room. that was like the big thing. Everyone, it's it's largely healed now, isn't it? From exactly, right? A coalition formed to outlaw fluorocarbons of different kinds. You know, in spray bottles and things like that. And guess what? No more hole in the ozone layer. 
you know, in England, a coalition came together to outlaw the slave trade in the early 1800s. That's a good example. And so I just think it's important to appreciate that things do work. Things really do work. But we need to come together and we need to not be naive. It's free to join the coalition. If you have a belly button, you're qualified to join the coalition. (laughs) And even if you don't, you probably still have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're an AI, we're going to talk maybe, but okay. And organizations as well. There's no cost. I mean, obviously we appreciate donations and, you know, to, to be able to have impact, but it's about numbers. It's about people basically saying suffering matters. Other people matter. These days we can so easily tune out the realness, the piercing tenderness of what it's like to be another person. And so much of what we're advocating for is just start with one human heart at a time. If compassion is a kind of superpower, it enabled our species to survive through extraordinary climate change over 300,000 years, tool-making hominid ancestors a couple million years before that. You know, let's tap into that superpower and be willing to be brave enough to make room enough for other people to land in your heart, Mm. which, of course, is alongside letting yourself land in your heart, too. Right. And um, feeling, I think, is terrifying to a lot of people right now. And I almost wonder if we feel it. I think a lot of the world has actually been so exposed to so much suffering in their community. Yeah. And in the Western world, a lot of us have been like, we've had more of an ability to sort of like put it over there. Yeah. And now it's kind of landing at everybody's doorstep and the level has ratcheted up. And it's almost like people are, they're putting up even higher walls because they feel like yeah. if I let it in, I don't know if I'll be able to breathe, let alone actually act in a way where I could be of service to myself and others yeah. in trying to actually relieve suffering in some way, shape or form. So it's almost like a defense mechanism, I feel like, to a certain extent. I think you're right. And here's where a little brain science is actually super useful, Hmm. besides being cool, but it's useful. (laughs) It's that actually empathy alone can lead to burnout. You can lead to feeling flooded, even re-traumatized by what you're feeling. But compassion, because it's sweet along with the bitter, it's bittersweet. There's the sense of the suffering, so there's an there's an em- empathy for the suffering, along with a benevolence, a caring, a lovingness, a kindness, a friendliness, a respect, depending on the nuances of the particular situation. And that aspect, the caringness aspect, activates reward centers in the brain because it feels good to be caring. It feels good to be social. It feels good to be loving, you know, to, to feel supportive, to be loyal right? Those have reward systems in the brain because it helped our ancestors survive at the individual level and also at the group level where in which genes were still shared. And so groups, in effect, were a a unit of evolution as well, given that they bred inside their group to a large extent. So if you are not just empathic, but you move into that compassionate energy, those qualities, then it's not overwhelming to open your heart. Yeah, super powerful. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Good Life Project is supported by Dell. So, seasons change. So, why not your tech? Upgrade now during the Dell Technologies Summer Sale Event and save on select PCs like the XPS 16 powered by Intel Core processors. You'll be able to bring your most intensive project to life with built-in AI, minimalistic design, immersive visuals, and cinematic audio. Plus, complete your dream setup with deals on select monitors, mice, and more must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop at dell.com slash deals, you'll have access to exceptional tech and electronics, plus free shipping on everything. Amazing prices await you for a limited time only at dell.com slash deals. That's dell.com slash deals or just click the link in the show notes. Good Life Project is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. So have you ever felt the challenge of reaching a key decision maker in the B2B world? Imagine connecting with a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders. Well, LinkedIn Ads provides precision targeting and measurement tools tailored for B2B marketers, outperforming other platforms with two to five times higher ROAS in technology. Plus, 79% of B2B content marketers vouch for LinkedIn Ads' exceptional paid media results. What sets LinkedIn ads apart is their understanding of the complex B2B landscape. They have built a platform to support you through intricate decision-making processes. I've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times to help grow our work-focused venture, Spark Endeavors, and I've been seriously impressed by the performance. So if you're ready to elevate your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We've been talking about sort of compassionate scale and allowing others in that scale and um, relatedness at scale. Let's zoom the lens in a little bit here because, you know, fundamentally, we can talk about people on the other side of the world, but I often wonder whether people who, who say yes to something big and far away and then ignoring the people who are right in front of them, people who are mm. right next to them. You know, on the one hand, we've been talking about why people don't do this, why don't get involved. 
Yeah. And on the other hand, I almost feel like there's a pendulum swing in the other direction, which you sometimes see where somebody goes all in almost as an avoidance mechanism for the difficult nature of a relationship with a child or with a partner or with a sibling or with a parent or, you know, mm. so let's sort of zoom the lens in a little bit here and talk about how we relate to people right next to us on a daily basis. And this is certainly the focus of your most recent book around really how do we cultivate relationships that are deep and meaningful and nourishing. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you talk about early on, and the book is great, and I love the way that you actually set it up. It's sort of like these 50 different things you can kind of dip in wherever you yeah. want. <laughs> you know, it's almost yeah, like, right. it's like a daily devotional almost to a certain extent. Yeah. One of the things that you talk about early on is this notion of being loyal to yourself. Yeah. And how important it is and also how much people struggle with that. And and as I was reading that, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I get that. And I wonder if part of what's going on there is also, it's hard to be loyal to someone that you you don't really know all that well. And I feel like a lot of us really don't know ourselves all that well. That's really interesting. As a longtime therapist, I would agree with you. I'm reminded somehow of this line, I think, from James Joyce in the Dubliners, maybe, you know, I'm not a super literary person, though, but I remember this line that Mr. Smith or something, buddy, lived at some distance from himself, right? I think a lot of people live at some distance. I did. I entered adulthood, you know, as a late teenager, let's say, numb from the neck down. That's how it felt. And absolutely. And I find also as a longtime therapist that half the people I saw coming into my office who had real issues. They cared immensely about the challenges and the suffering of other people. They were loyal to others. They would immediately mobilize. They would act. You used that word mobilize earlier. They would mobilize to do something for their friend, their mate, their parents, their kids. Same, But given the same level of challenge or suffering in themselves, they were in relationship to it. They would not mobilize around it, even at the most basic level of bringing compassion to themselves for it. Or a sense of um, that what was happening to them was unfair when, in fact, they were being mistreated by other people. And so igniting the pilot light, it's absolutely the very beginning. Because if that pilot light is not ignited, you can read all the self-help books in the world. You can listen to all the cool podcasts in the world, you know, and it won't make a difference. Because it it just, there's no pilot light there. So that's one of the absolute first things to do. And I find, especially for people who belong to any group that's been kind of systematically told that they don't matter as much as others. Mm-hmm. Women as a group, people of color as a group, other different groups. If a person is a member of those particular groups, it's especially important to be loyal to yourself. Mm. And easier said than done. That's where, you know, I'm, I'm a, my kids joke me. They say, okay, Dad, what's your seven point plan for that one? You know, <laughs> or like a four by 12 matrix, you know. And you very graciously, like with every time you bring up like one of these 50 different things, you're like, and I'm going to give you something to do also. So here oh, yeah. <laughs> to a fault, you know, I, right. I think about. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I know. Show, don't tell, right? You know, a right, right. full of great advice. All right. How do I do it? What do I do? Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Oh, be loyal to yourself <laughs> or. Some of the other chapters, admit fault and move on. One of my favorites, right? Or see the being behind the eyes or stand up to bullies. How do you actually do it? How do you actually do it? Say what you want. How do you actually do it? Give them what they want. How do you actually do it? So I'm I'm a maniac for that sort of thing. 
I find about stand, being loyal to yourself, there are three things clearly you can do. One is to recognize the fairness of it, that it's moral, it's principled, particularly not because you're wanting to become some philosopher at Harvard, but because many people have a belief system that somehow it's bad to be on their own side. Mm. It's a sin. They're not allowed. It's selfish. It's selfish. I'm going to give less to others. There are all these beliefs, and it's really helpful to just challenge them and say, wait a second, I would want my friend to be loyal to themselves. I could also recognize that as people take care of themselves objectively, they have more to offer to others. It's generous to others to fill up your own cup. Oh, but gee, do I apply that thinking to myself? Usually not. So that's first, it's principled. Second, to bring the heart into it, to realize, wow, my suffering matters. The way I'm sad, I'm frustrated, I feel let down, I'm beleaguered, I'm worn out, I feel like I'm running on empty, that matters. And I'm not wallowing in self-pity to bring myself self-compassion. There's a warmth there. There's a warm feeling. And then the third aspect of being loyal to yourself is muscular. You just, you have moxie. You just have this fundamental sense of, like you would for a friend, like I think about Gandalf, you know, because I'm a Lord of the Rings nut. You know, at that Baradur, the bridge, you know, the whatever that creature from the depths, where the Balrogs coming up, you know, Gandalf is like, you shall not pass. You know, it has that strength to it, to bring that kind of strength to ourselves or on our own behalf, that dimension of moxie. So any one of those three are good ways to be more on your own side, to be for yourself and all three together are a good combination. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, and this kind of ties in with a couple of the other things that sort of fall under the befriending yourself, you know, if we're we're going to be in relation to others, part of it is we really actually need to be in relation with ourselves first. Um, And then you just mentioned like, it's this notion also of self-compassion and we've been talking about compassion towards others, but we're human. We mess up all day, every day. Like we're not the people that we thought we would be. We're not where we thought we would be in life. We haven't accomplished this, that, and the other thing. And the notion of having compassion for ourselves and then forgiving our humanity at the same time, again, is something that I think when you sort of offer it up cognitively, people are like, oh, yeah, 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 that makes sense. But in practice on a day-to-day basis, it seems so hard to operationalize. (sighs) Well, you're taking a great (laughs) summary. You have now summarized probably 50 studies on self-compassion, including that most people are much more inclined to have empathy for the sorrows of others and to have a caring response toward it. That's the essence of compassion than they are to themselves. And yet, again, those 50 studies or 500 probably at this point show that compassion for yourself makes you stronger. Uh, People are more resilient. They're also more ambitious because a lot of people are just hammered by an inner critic. And if you have compassion for yourself, that's a way to stand up against the inner critic And it's also a way to foster a greater sense of worth. I've known a number of people who have very high self-esteem. They can give you a long list of their positive qualities, but they feel bad about themselves deep down. They feel inadequate, ashamed, like a bad person, unlovable, broken, damaged goods. Compassion for yourself is very healing for all of those things. You know, when when something happens. So there you are. You're interacting with your boss, your partner, your kid, your neighbor. And you start to realize, whoa, something's bothering me here. Something happened. 
you know, maybe they said something weird. Maybe you said something and now you're mad at yourself about it. You didn't get what you wanted. They kind of put you down in some way, maybe, or just ignored you. First, recognize it. Be mindful. Second, be compassionate toward yourself. Third, be active. Do something. Maybe inside your mind alone. And what you do is you think to yourself, I'm not going to talk to that person anymore. <laughs> or, you know, that was the last time I'm going to go on a date with them or do a business project with them. You know, maybe it's just entirely in your own mind. But the point is, compassion for yourself is not where you end. It's where you start. It's where you start. And then you keep on going. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that bridging that gap, it sounds like, well, of course it makes sense. But then to actually do it, it's a practice, I would imagine, you know, like little steps yeah. and, and over and over and over until it becomes more just your way of being. Yeah. You know, you start out talking a lot about, okay, so let's really get acquainted with ourselves because that is the core of, of being able to relate to other human beings. And hopefully yeah. they're doing the same in some level. And then you move into sort of an exploration of different ideas around a category that you would call loosely warming the heart. Yeah. Opening up that conversation is the notion of seeing the person behind the eyes, if I remember the language. Yeah, that's right. Take me a little bit deeper into what you mean by that. Well, to do it in real time, as soon as you started talking about it, within a couple of seconds, you know, we're doing this online, you know, your two-dimensional thumbnail on my screen. And yet, boom, suddenly I'm tracking you in a different kind of a way. And it's not to be weird or stare at people in some new age <laughs> invasive sense, like, whoa. <laughs> but um, it's to realize that, like, you're a cool guy, you're articulate, you're, you know, you're intelligent, you know, and all the rest. And behind the words, behind the personality, behind the persona is a real person, is a being as process. You know, I have a Buddhist orientation, so I think of the self is a process, selfing, being, being. There's being there that you matter to you, right? There's a real person there. And as soon as I slow down to get a sense of a being there behind your eyes, you know, I could close my eyes. I would still be aware of, you know, the being in you. Immediately moves me to treating you better. <laughs> Not that I've been treating you badly, but to be alert in a whole new kind of way because it's like there's a sensitivity there. there. There's a person there. This is a totally wacko metaphor because I've never golfed in any serious way. But I think about golf shoes with those little spikes, I guess they have. Uh, and I just think that we're all wearing golf shoes, kind of walking on top of each other, you know? And it's when you realize that there's someone over there who's really affected by how they're treated. You take off your golf shoes, <laughs> you know? You walk it with socks on, right? Instead of these prickly things that are so wounding to other people. Yeah, I think it's so powerful. And I often wonder how technology affects this capacity. On the one hand, yeah. it flattens the world where, you know, like I'm in one place, you're in another place. Tomorrow I could be talking to somebody literally on the other side of the world. And it's like, we're side by side on the same screen. It's fantastic. Yeah. You know, we're not Luddites it does so much to help bridge the gap between people who, but for the fact that it exists, would never actually be in conversation, in partnership. And at the same time, it is so much easier to not see the person behind the eyes, yeah. to say things that you would never dream of saying had you been standing in front of that person with their five-year-old child holding their hand next to them. 
It's truth. I have a hint of, you know, my the hair on the back of my neck is up a little bit. And I want to say something, or I'm going to drop a comment here online. You know, like this is sort of like taking a page out of your playbook here. It's like, I really want to just connect with the fact that this person is a human being and they're struggling and they've got burdens and they've got things that they're carrying and they've got family and they've got love and they've got, and I think it really, when you can just literally take a beat and say, you know, like there, but for God's grace, go I, it changes the way that we not only see, but relate to people as, you know, like living, breathing units of dignity that deserve to be treated with that level of respect. That's beautifully said, really beautifully said. I find also that when we can just be rested in ordinary human relatedness, almost old school mm-hmm. neighborliness, just being present, um, slowing down enough to to really just be present with other people and to create an opening in which they can be present as well. When we do that, it actually puts us on stronger ground to assert ourselves. If we need to. Yeah, that makes sense. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAST Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors, Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAST Creative. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Invesco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Invesco is not affiliated with Acast Creative. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business... 
to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details something else that you talk about sort of under this warming the heart umbrella is this notion of putting no one out of your heart you're going after it i am this is good (laughs) because this is something that i struggle with Mm. i have to imagine so many people struggle with the notion that you know you feel some way wronged or harmed by somebody. And all you want to do is literally figure out every wall that you can put up so that they don't exist in your world, in your life, in your heart anymore. You don't want them because that way you can't be re-harmed. You can't re-experience it. Like you're just jettisoning it. But you have an interesting invitation to explore a bit of a different approach. It's important to realize that, you know, the classic line proverb, uh, fences make for good neighbors. Paradoxically, autonomy supports intimacy. It's a fancy way of putting it. And so we need to retain the right to put someone out of our business if they don't come to work regularly, or we need to put someone out of our bed. It's just not going well as a romantic partner. But do we need to put them out of our heart? We may need to put them out of positions of power. We may even need to put them out of mainstream society, at least for a while, notwithstanding the enormous issues with the whole penal system and all the rest of that. We may need to do things like that. But do we have to put them out of our heart? And that distinction is really powerful. Retaining for yourself the right to do what you need to do to protect yourself and those you care about without turning that other person into an enemy, without turning them into an it. You may know the structure, you probably do, of Martin Buber, these three kinds of relationships, I, thou, I, it, it, it. And I think about the ways in which we tend to it people. You can just see in the, you know, the rationale for the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the itting from the side of Putin of the Ukrainian people. You can think of the itting of certain people over the centuries. And you can feel it when someone is itting you, when they are not holding you in their heart, rather than thouing you, even if they disagree with you. And For me, it's just turned into a beautiful practice that retains an inner freedom. Instead of being hijacked, played like a puppet by the inner strings of the reactive mind that want to 
thrust people out of the heart with grievances and anger and vengeance and punishing ill will toward them. Instead of that, to retain a fundamental freedom that one, your or mine, one's expression radiating, outflowing of decency and compassion and humanity is unconditional. It's like a radiating field of caring and kindness that others move through. Now, we may change the form of our relationship. We may put them out of our company, put them out of our bed, put them out of our halls of power. But our fundamental stance of open-hearted benevolence and clear seeing of sentience in both humans and non-human animals, the quivering vulnerability of all sentient beings, you know, to hold that recognition means retaining a fundamental inner freedom that says, you can take all kinds of things from me, but you cannot take from me my capacity to see the good in you. You know, it was immediately, as as soon as I I first read just the notion, immediately comes to mind is the meta-meditation, loving-kindness meditation, where for those who aren't familiar with it, you you recite any variation of lines, which sort of says, you know, like, may I be healthy, happy, uh, well, uh, but at some point, then you bring to mind somebody who, you know, is who you love, who you care about. So you bring to mind somebody who's a perfect stranger. And then, you know, kind of somewhere down the road, you bring to mind somebody who you struggle with. Maybe That's that right. person who's brought you wrong. And the invitation is wish these same things. There was the same goodness towards yeah. that person. Yeah. And I've struggled with that part of the meditation in the past. Not that I'm at odds with many people in my life. But on occasion where there is, where I really kind of think about someone who I maybe don't even know, but maybe it's Mm. out there in the world that I feel is not doing good things. But I feel like it's a really powerful practice to keep bringing them into that expression of openness and compassion and wishing well. Because almost like on an identity level, I want to see myself as I'm the type of person who is able to hold this Mm. no matter what comes my way. Yeah, maybe selfishly do it more for me than for anyone else. Well, what you said there is really true, that while there's a moral basis for resting in this stance, and and why, in all the world's spiritual traditions, as well as in secular humanism, there's a valuing of this non-referential. In other words, it's not about any particular being. It's a general stance, omitting none in the language of early Buddhism, omitting none. In addition to the moral aspects of that, it's enlightened self-interest through and through. And people can feel it, that as you rest in that sense of open-heartedness and and good wishes, in a context in which you are taking care of yourself, you're standing up for your own needs and rights, you're protecting yourself, setting boundaries and all the rest. As you rest in that feeling of open-hearted, warm-heartedness, it feeds you as it flows through you. It protects you. It helps you feel less upset about the people who've wronged you. And it also puts you in a much more, a much stronger position pragmatically to elicit better treatment of you from other people. And for those moments where you just can't let something go, and of course, we've all had them, <laughs> mm-hmm. had them in the past, we'll have them again. Or maybe you're just, you know, you're bound up in a conversation or a negotiation or an argument Mm -hmm. or some kind of conflict with somebody 
who maybe you don't care if they continue to be in your life, but maybe that you really do. Maybe the, the partner that you have, you love them dearly, but you're in a moment of conflict. Anger can flare up. All these different emotions flare up. One of the invitations that you offer, um, you know, and this again is, or you just mentioned, it's important to also not be a doormat in, in moments, stand yeah. up for yourself. You know, like be, a, you know, find the strength to actually express who you are and stand in it. You also explore the notion of anger in that context huh. and the idea of using it and not letting it use you. Yeah. I'm glad you highlighted that. And that's been a journey for me personally to appreciate that while I do not think of myself as a typically angry person, when I get angry, it can have real impact. And there's an interesting neurological fact that of our so-called four types of negative emotions, uh, anger, sorrow, hurt, or shame, and fear, the big four, people don't like feeling anxious. They don't like feeling inadequate or ashamed or remorseful or, you know, they, or hurt, and they don't like feeling sad. Okay. But anger, anger actually activates reward systems in your brain, oh, dopamine and norepinephrine. You know, yeah, there's that rush and it's organizing and um, it serves a function of highlighting what's problematic and, and mobilizing energy. It's, it's helpful. And especially if a person belongs to a group that's been systematically mistreated, uh, often while having their anger suppressed and being told that it's their fault where it's a pathology. It's especially important to hear that I'm not talking about suppressing your anger and all the rest of that. Still, anger of those four emotions is the most consequential interpersonally. A lot of research shows that expressed anger is much more negatively impactful than expressed sadness or shame or fear, typically in relationships. And we know what it's like to be on the receiving end of somebody you know, who's been angry at it. There's a proverb that describes anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned barb. Okay? So what to do about it, right? For me, what's really helpful is to observe the two-stage process of getting angry. Again, this is science here, that very often there's a buildup phase in which we're getting primed. Maybe we're kind of hungry. Maybe we're irritated from the long commute. Maybe there've been a series of small things. These are like little match heads in a corner and that's the priming. And then finally the spark comes. And even if it's a small spark, it's that proverbial final straw that broke the camel's back and off goes the, the flame. So one of the keys is to catch stuff early on. That's huge in relationships. Mm. And to either talk about it early on or to let it go, <laughs> but to just have it fester in the corner, you know, while you're ruminating about it, building up resentments, that's just tossing match heads in the corner, waiting for a spark to land first. Second, when something does trigger you really, really, really try to slow it down. I mean, from my own experience, uh, my own mistakes in relationships often came from flashing my anger, flaring at people in different ways, even in ways that struck me as seemingly mild, like exasperated or rolling my eyes, had a lot of impact. You know, and there's this distinction you probably know from diversity work between intent and impact. We can have pretty mild intent or just positive intent. We're trying to help someone we care about, you know, do better next time. Okay, it's well intended but the impact's really negative. 
to recognize that. And so for me, slowing it down and also feeling into what's under the anger, because very often what's under the anger is frustration or fear or hurt, Mm. right? And if we can speak about the frustration, feeling obstructed and attaining an important goal, or being anxious about something, being worried about something, feeling threatened in some way, or feeling hurt, feeling let down, feeling mistreated, you know, affronted, provoked by another person. If we can just talk about those deeper, softer feelings, first of all, it's usually going to go a lot better with that other person. And second, you're going to be more in touch with yourself. You're going to, instead of getting hijacked by righteous anger and identifying with the case that emerges in your mind, I would have been a good lawyer and thank goodness I did not go down that road <laughs> in a lot of ways because I might have gotten hijacked by it. I went down a become a therapist road and become a you know mindfulness teacher road instead. Man, we can get so hijacked by that case. I'm right. We build up our case. Watch out for that. Don't let it hijack you. And one great way to prevent that is to get in touch with the softer, deeper feelings underneath the anger. So those are different ways to practice with anger. It's a big practice. So what I heard is you're saying that there actually is a difference between lawyers and therapists and meditation teachers. Well, I'm for lawyers, you know. But... <laughs> you're talking to a former lawyer in a very past oh, life. Oh, I had no way. idea you were a recovering attorney. <laughs> but decades passed at this point in my life. But the point you make that, I mean, like all kidding aside, yeah. there's information in anger. Yeah. And like, what is it the frustration? Is it the fear? Is it the sadness? Is it the grief? Or did you just sleep really badly the night before and you yeah. don't have the capacity to yeah. just be human for a day and you just need to walk away and go take a nap, which I've done. You know, almost everything that we're talking about here, though, like what strikes me is that there's an underlying assumption that we haven't really surfaced yet, which is that in order to do any of these things, in order to recognize any of these things that we're talking about, requires a certain level of self-awareness. And if we don't have that level of self-awareness, you know, like it's very hard to, to realize when you're in the priming stage of anger or, you know, like realize when you're in the triggered stage and then like actively try and slow it down or realize that it's actually fear speaking or sadness speaking instead of this. And similar with what all the other things that we're talking about. And, you know, you as somebody who, you know, as you mentioned, has been in the Buddhist tradition for many years and, and teaching, I'm always a little bit amazed that Awareness is is such a touchstone of our ability to actually be intentional mm. in the way that we treat both yeah. ourselves and others around us and craft the world that we want. And yet it's something that is not really trained or offered in any mm. broad educational sense unless we actively go and seek it. And most people don't until they've reached a crisis point in their lives. But it is sort of like the meta skill for everything that we're talking about. Why do you think that so many people are so unaware. Mm. Knee-jerk reaction would be to say the pace of society, technology, um, mm. but this is not a new issue. <laughs> yeah. Part of it has to do with attention, right? And getting control of attention. One of the great refuges for me in my fairly unhappy childhood, a person, my parents loving and decent people, not their fault, complex reasons. I was quite unhappy as a kid. And one of the refuges for me was science fiction mm. and also being out in the woods near my home in Southern California. 
And in both those settings, whether it's in my imagination or the characters identified with and saving the space station, right? Or going out in the woods and being able to camp a little bit or make a campfire safely. In that was a valuing of, of agency, of autonomy. Rather than being a nail, being more like a hammer, not violently, but constructively going through life. And that aspect of orienting to your life at cause rather than at effect is absolutely fundamental to mental health, coping, success, lifetime earnings, relationship satisfaction, physical health, lifespan, et cetera, et cetera. It's this fundamental attitude of taking responsibility for your own life. What follows from that may be the ultimate pilot light, right? That your life matters and you're going to bring your heart to it and you're going to make effort. Immediately then, it follows. You, you, you need to know where you are. What's going on? Awareness, in other words. I was just, in other words, I'm kind of responding to the topic of awareness and reflecting on what underlies being motivated to develop greater and greater awareness. And I think when people are not aware, they're kind of helpless and they're vulnerable to being buffeted by all kinds of things, the sneaker waves of life that they just didn't see coming, but they could have, or the accident, you know, a hundred feet down the road because they're only looking 10 feet down the road in front of themselves. It's really vulnerable, really, really vulnerable. And so, gosh, if there's I was just thinking recently about how do you, I wonder, how do you look back on your life and, and judge it? And what are like major values, you know, as people reflect on their life or, or they can take refuge in and feel good enough today. And three stand out for me lately. I've been reflecting on them. One is, did you bring a good heart? Were you basically decent and kind and being helpful or were you mean and cruel? callous. And we can be mean and cruel and callous quite easily. But instead, did you bring your whole heart? Were you good-hearted about it? All right. Good. Good on you. Second, did you make effort? There's no replacement for effort. I'm a longtime therapist. I've gotten nicer, but I've gotten tougher. There's no replacement for effort, right? Making you know reasonable effort, which means that at a certain point in the day, you clock out. And then did you learn along the way? Was there learning? A lot of people don't have a learning curve. And in my own work related to positive neuroplasticity, I'm really interested in how people can convert states to traits and grow the, the good inside that lasts. And there's a whole shtick about that, maybe for another time. Yeah. Right there. Like when I look back and I have my self-doubts and self-criticism, and things I have remorse about, and I've completed 70 laps around the sun, pretty wild. What a long strain trip it's been, you know? And it gives me comfort to look back and go without arrogance, really. It kind of brings you almost to a sense of modesty or humility to look back at your life and go, you know, did I bring a good heart on the whole with some lapses, but on the whole, did I make efforts, sincere efforts on the whole? And did I grow? Did I learn? Did I correct? Did I implement correction as I understood it along the way? You know, and then if you can answer yes to those three, that's a pretty you know, the good life project, right? That is a good life project. You just kind of stole my thunder from my regular final question for every guest. 
<laughs> well, counselor, you still have a closing <laughs> argument to make. I'm thinking about how many of the kind members of, of the jury. <laughs> so many of the my wife and I enjoy watching B plus TV. That's what we call it. B plus TV about an hour and a half a night, and uh, we'll watch a couple shows. And I think they're mainly about lawyers, either lawyers or doctors. Yeah, just can't get away. Can't get away from us old, old recovered or current or whoever it may be. Um, yeah. The notion of as we start to come full circle, and you know, we've, we've talked about broad, large-scale compassion, really understanding and allowing space for the suffering of others as almost a source fuel for us actually taking action and saying, "I feel compelled to do yeah. something about this." And then we kind of narrowed the lens a bit to we're in relation with people just in our own world, and starting with us, like how do we actually? We need to know ourselves, and then mm. some of the major touch points that come up with other people. As I mentioned earlier, um, for those listening, like we've just dipped into a handful of ideas, but um, Rick lays out 50 or so, all different things. And to, to really, it's an enjoyable and also really valuable read to dive into these different ideas. Mm, thank you. And you also have a whole thing about building cases in there. By the way, everything keeps circling back to this lawyer. <laughs> we tend to feel slighted. And then Drop like some, the case is what it's called. Drop the case because I'm... Yeah, watch out yeah. for the case you build against someone. Right, we're yeah. like secretly gathering evidence in yep. our mind for like the big thing. Um, yeah. You know, really, I think you brought this home so beautifully, which is really like if we really come back to um, becoming self-aware on our own level and really starting with just like, what do I genuinely believe in? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the values I hold dear? And um, am I showing up as yeah. often as I can and living by them? And I think that makes a huge difference. So as we come full circle in this container of Good Life Project and like I said, you kind of answered this already, so but I'll see if anything else comes up. If I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? It's a group of three that overlaps when I said, um, you know, I had a period in my life in my mid-20s when I actually thought about killing myself. And I wasn't too miserable, but I was asking myself, what's the point? Why keep going, right? What's the why? That's how I relate to your question. What's the why? And I realized that Generally, almost every why boils down into one of these three categories. First, quality of life. Good life consists of a combination of hedonic and eudaimonic well-being, both the hedonic well-being, which I'm experiencing a lot of right now, Jonathan, with you, the fun, the ideas, the camaraderie, the humor, feels good, you know, drinking my cup of coffee looking out the window and seeing a sunset, hedonic well-being, and then eudaimonic well-being, a sense of meaning and purpose, you know, which also is present here for me that it can feel like, you know, there, there's something fulfilling in doing this. My, my capabilities are being used to some extent. So quality of life values, which include lovingness and caringness and all that. The second major why is around service. So independent of quality of life, people want to serve. They want to help. Even if it's painful, even if it puts them at risk, like working in a war zone for the sake of others. They want to serve. They want to contribute, independent of any personal payoff in terms of their quality of life broadly. And then the third major category of why has to do with learning, including the ultimate forms of learning that have to do with awakening, whether one does that in a religious context or not. You know, the, the complete liberation of the mind and the heart and arresting fundamentally in um, the ultimate ground of being, whatever 
that is. And so for me, the good life is one that is rich and full in all three of those areas. Mm. Thank you. Hey, before you leave, if you love this episode, Safe Bet, you will also love the conversation that we had with Tara Brock about the practice of compassion and acceptance. You'll find a link to Tara's episode in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please go ahead and follow Good Life Project in your favorite listening app. And if you found this conversation interesting or inspiring or valuable, and chances are you did since you're still listening here, would you do me a personal favor, a seven second favor and share it? Maybe on social or by text or by email, even just with one person. Just copy the link from the app you're using and tell those you know, those you love, those you want to help navigate this thing called life a little better so we can all do it better together with more ease and more joy. Tell them to listen. Then even invite them to talk about what you've both discovered because when podcasts become conversations and conversations become action, that's how we all come alive together. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. Mm